I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. I hope you're safe, sound, and, and above all, well. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of conversations, virtual in part, on critical issues facing America and the world. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome to, uh, to Carnegie Connect Sue Binias, the U.S. Deputy Envoy for Climate, according to the New York Times, at the risk of embarrassing her, uh, a national resource variously described as the, quote, closer, unquote, in climate negotiations, or by her boss, John Kerry, as the, quote, unsung hero of the COP process. I can vouch for much of this, <clears throat> having soon seen Sue in action at the Department of State, where we met decades ago. She was part of a talented group of lawyers and the Office of the Legal Advisor who supported the Secretary of State and some of us in negotiations and other international issues. Uh, without a doubt, some of the most creative humans came out of that office. Um, Sue would uh, become Deputy Legal Advisor and remain the department's lead lawyer uh, on climate for more than 25 years. She's been teaching before she returned to government at Yale, Columbia, Columbia University of Chicago, and she's now, I think, still a senior fellow with the Yale Jackson School of Global Affairs. Sue, it's great and an honor to have you. Welcome to Carnegie Connects. Thanks, Aaron. Great to see you. Um, you know, some of the highlights of working at the State Department were in the early days, working with you uh, made me confident that I'd made the right choice going to the State Department, you know, getting to work with people as brilliant as you. So anyway, thanks for having me. Right. It's a great compliment. And uh, we're dating both of us. So we bet we best move on, I think. Um, before we dive into the granular, I want to get your view from gain some thematic altitude and get your view from 30,000 feet. So let me try to frame a question. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I guess, consider the gold standard of climate science in, in the sense that it's synthesized several other reports, the one that came out in March of this year. The first, I guess, since the Paris Accord in 2015, warned that the global average temperatures, uh, global average temperatures are expected to rise 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels by the first half of the early 2030s. Beyond that point, I think the report stresses, you're going to see real pressure on human societies. A lot of people see the uh, see climate and say the future's already here. Drought, extreme heat, flooding, rising seas, Arctic thaws, damage to fisheries and coral reefs. The report talks about, I think they even use the term one last chance to shift course. But that last chance would require industrialized nations to join together to slash greenhouse gases in half by 2030 and then stop adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere altogether by the 2050s. So I guess my first question is, is it doable? Well, let me give a maybe a teeny bit of background so that you can put this IPCC reports in context. So the Paris Agreement came out in 2015, so when it was adopted. The temperature goal of the Paris Agreement, um, in other words, our objective was to limit the um, increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees centigrade. And then kind of as an add-on, it said, uh, and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees. So at the time, people were thinking of 1.5 a 1.5 degree limit as, you know, uh, not the main event, but something you would, you know, try for if you could. Um, since that time, and there have been several IPCC reports since 2015, each one makes it clearer that you really need to be pushing for 1.5 rather than two, even though people, and I think the average person who doesn't live and, and breathe this stuff all the time might say like, how could there be that big a difference between 1.5 and 2? That seems ridiculous. Um, but there was a report from the IPCC that came out a couple of years after Paris making a huge distinction between 1.5 and 
two, you know, as one example, at two degrees increase, you know, all coral reefs in the world die. Um, so each percentage, you know, each tenth of a degree is actually significant in our world. Um, so I think that's pretty much why at one of these annual meetings, the so-called COP, the Conference of the Parties, uh, a couple of years ago, the world gravitated towards, I would say, not as an official new amendment to the Paris Agreement, but more, you know, de facto uh, agreed that we really need to push for 1.5 rather than two or or well below two. So that's just to sort of explain what are, what do those numbers mean? But um, you're right that each time the IPCC comes out with a report, um, whether a you know piecemeal report or one of these big synthesis reports, it does make clear that we have to do a lot more and we have to do it more quickly. And that's really the test for this decade, which is you know a period which uh, people are calling the decisive decade, the critical decade. Um, as you said, we're supposed to be having global emissions by 2030, which is a you know a steep. Uh, a steep challenge, but that's what, you know, each one of our, <laughs> that's what we do on a daily basis is try to uh, try to achieve that, or at least keep it within reach. Right. But so there's, I mean, when you use the word, I'm thinking of the country song, <clears throat> one of my favorites, frankly, by Vince Gill, in which he talks about one, <clears throat> excuse me, one more last chance. So I, I guess I, I want to try to understand, is there a critical point beyond which the science will overwhelm the politics. And regardless of what we do, even reducing matters by nth of a degree, we're headed for not the headline, but the trend line of catastrophic impact. Yeah. Um, the, what we're trying to avoid, and it may not be possible to avoid, but we're trying what we're trying to at least minimize is what they call overshoot which is going above the 1.5 degree limit, right? So I don't want to make it seem like a black and white thing. Either you, you know, either you achieve this goal or you don't achieve it. It's more of a continuum, right? The more you can keep yourself to 1.5 and minimize going over, the better off you are because nobody really knows whether you can completely reverse the, the overshoot. Um, you know, or whether parts of it would be irreparable. Also, countries are trying to adapt to climate change, and it's hard to know what you're adapting to if you don't know what the temperature increase is going to be. So I would say, you know, kind of all eyes focused on let's do everything possible uh, to try to limit, um, you know, limit limit the increase and therefore or thereby limit the damage. Right. So it's a pr it's a process, basically. And there's no absolute success or failure, presumably. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's a little overdramatic to say, you know, there's a point in time beyond which it's, you know, you've lost the chance. No, but it's obviously much better to do it sooner rather than later in, in every respect, you know, economically, uh, overshoot wise, et cetera. Is it fair to say that we've actually made considerable progress and avoided some of the direst climate scenarios that talk about warming of three, four, five degrees or more? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, and it's a good question. It's a good timing of that question because when Paris was concluded in 2015, the you know it's, it's the Paris Agreement. The design is based on this concept of nationally determined contributions. The commitments are not negotiated. Each country figures out its own commitment and, you know, listeners may think, well, that's a crazy way to organize an international agreement. But, you know, if we had more time, we could get into like why that was the least bad option. Uh, anyway, uh, the, all of the those so-called NDCs added up in 2015 to probably something like 2.7 degrees, by the way, which was much better than without a Paris Agreement, where we were on track to the, probably the high threes or even four degrees, which would really have been catastrophic. But it did illustrate that if you have a, a, a goal in an agreement that says well below two and pursuing 1.5, that it wouldn't be sustainable to sort of just, you know, stop with a bunch of NDCs that add up to 2.7. So we created this long-term agreement where countries have to update their NDCs uh, every X years. And the other feature, which is happening this year, which is why I'm 
I'm glad you asked the question, um, is that we put in there a uh, regular so-called stock take, or it's called the global stock take, um, to see how are we doing, not you know individually, but collectively uh, in relation to the temperature goal. So this year is the year where we're, we're asking that exact question that you just asked, which is like, so how are we doing? What are the positives? What are the negatives? So, you know, there will be an outcome coming out of the COP at the end of this year, which will do exactly what, uh, what you're talking about, which is like, so have we made progress? How much progress? What are the gaps? Uh, and what do we need to do about it? So kind of like a three-part harmony. What's the good what's the bad? And, you know, now what do we do about it? I actually think it's important not to be entirely negative. You do have people only talking about, oh my God, we're not on track, the gaps, the gaps, which is all, you know, true. And you want to be honest, of course. But I, I do think we ought to give some credit to what the Paris Agreement has uh, achieved. We're far better off with it than without it. And it's also had an impact way beyond itself. I mean, everywhere you turn, companies and institutions, you know, they're, they, they are generally following uh, what they will call Paris aligned targets or Paris based approaches. You know, Paris has now taken on a kind of a life of its own as the, as the North star of, of commitments uh, all over the place. So I, I think it has had a big impact. The UN stock take, it's a UN process, correct? The UN report like the IPCC. Well, it's not the United Nations per se. It's this treaty. It's the it's Paris Agreement process. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk about COP twenty eight, even though it hasn't occurred yet. Occurred at the end of the year, but that stock take will 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 coincide with COP twenty eight. Is going to be purposely timed to do so, or it will be done too? Yeah. I mean, the Paris Agreement called for the first stock take to take place in twenty twenty three. So uh, it's been going on for a while. It's been, a you know, like a two-year process. I don't want to bore you with the details, but, you know, it had sort of a, you know, information gathering phase. It had a technical phase, which we're in now, and then it's going to have a more political phase. And so the COP will come out with some kind of decision, still being debated exactly what that looks like, which will kind of lay out, you know, here's where we are and here's what we ought to be doing. And of course, that will be somewhat controversial probably less so in terms of where we are uh, but but more controversial in terms of okay so now what and you know what are the expectations right one more question because I want to get to the Biden administration's climate goals and that is the issue of adaptation is adaptation the sort of poor cousin to cutting global emissions that is to say if you can't reach the goal we have to find a way to manage the planet in the face of these extreme weather conditions i mean or or they, they both need to to be pursued together is one better than the other i mean how, how do you how do you conceptualize adaptation yeah so i think uh your characterization would have been accurate a while back i think it was the the poor stepchild um or whatever of mitigation if you looked at the original framework convention on climate if you looked at the kyoto protocol um Etc. There was it was all about mitigation, you know, reduce keeping the emissions out of the out of the atmosphere. Very little attention paid to impacts. That's because there really weren't uh, significant impacts at that time. They were just you know predicted. When on the road to the Paris Agreement, there was a big push by you know the more vulnerable countries that were already experiencing impacts to give kind of equal weight to adaptation. So if you take a look at the Paris Agreement, you'll see that there's um, basically equal time devoted to the issue of adaptation. It's become much more of an important issue um, in the world. Every cop now focuses uh, a lot of attention on adaptation. A lot of money goes to adaptation. It's not 50-50. There is a push for 50-50, which for many different reasons has not been, um, you know, com you know, followed to the letter. Uh, but I would say it's, yeah, it's definitely a um, key issue Last year's COP, which was in Egypt, was very much focused on adaptation. It was considered the Africa COP. I know, Aaron, as if, from your perspective, as a former State Department person who worked on Middle East issues, you'd be surprised to hear that the COP last year in Egypt was the Africa COP, and the COP this year in Dubai is the Asia COP, right? Because in 
in State Department terms, those are both <laughs> the Middle East. But in any way, in our world, last year's COP was the Africa COP, and that's obviously a huge issue for uh, for Africa. So there was a lot of attention paid to adaptation. And uh, President Biden, when he came, you know, we did a joint uh, event with Egypt on adaptation in Africa, for example, and brought a lot of uh, deliverables to the table. I do want to come back to COP28 uh, and the choice of the Emirates. Um, fascinating, by the way. Um, but I, want, I wonder, you returned to government during the Biden administration. Could you, and it's almost half time, a little more than half time in the, in the first administration. Um, sketch out for us, if you could, the two or three key climate priorities of the administration, keeping in mind that we are one country, even though we may contribute to, what, 10% of global emissions, with the Chinese contributing maybe 30%. Um, you started ha having to get back on track, given the pre uh, your predecessor's decision to withdraw from Paris climate. So identify the, the, the core goals over the last two two years plus, and how are we doing? Yeah, um, good question. So from an international climate policy point of view, which is what I was focused on, um, as opposed to domestic, where obviously we passed the Inflation Reduction Act and did all kinds of uh, great, significant things at home. From an international point of view, I think it, it actually does boil down to three, <laughs> three goals. Um, coincidentally. So the first one is, as you said, get back on track is exactly how I would put it. Um, I'll explain what that means. The second would be uh, asserting U.S. climate leadership or reasserting it uh, after the Trump years and then raising global climate ambition. And let me just give a little kind of texture to each one of those. In terms of getting back on track, obviously rejoining Paris. I think the first thing President Biden did was sign the instrument to get back in. I actually drove the instrument to New York because that was during COVID and there was no other way to get it to the UN. Um, so that was sort of funny. Uh, we the, tra the travails of a climate negotiator. <laughs> yeah. The second thing is um, we had to develop a new nationally determined contribution because ours had pretty much fallen off the table when we withdrew. Uh, we also sent to the Senate the so-called Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol that might be confusing because it's a different treaty. So your listeners may wonder, like, what, what does that have to do with climate change? That was a, uh, a substitute for ozone-depleting substances, which are governed by a different treaty. The Montreal Protocol turned out to be, you know, very potent greenhouse gases. So under a different treaty, uh, an amendment was passed to control those. And, you know, the world was going ahead ratifying. So that's another thing that we um, we undertook in terms of the getting back on track goal. The second goal of reasserting U.S. leadership on climate had a, had a bunch of different components. One, of course, was to uh, uh, to appoint the first special presidential envoy in the form of John Kerry, and I think that was you know symbolically very important because the former Secretary of State um, to be to take on this role showed the rest of the world how seriously we were taking it. And a lot of countries followed suit and appointed their own special envoys. Um, China, in fact, brought back Xi Jinping from retirement to be the counterpart to uh, to John Kerry. The President Biden had also promised during the campaign that he would hold a leaders summit or virtual, of course, because it was during COVID, within the first 100 days. So the first, I think we did it on day 95, the very first leaders meeting in the administration was devoted to climate, which was also important. Uh, we reinvigorated the Major Economies Forum. It's a group that was actually started under President Bush uh, of the 16 or 17 countries in the world that make up about 80 percent of, of global emissions. That had kind of fallen um, into uh, whatever oblivion <laughs> during the Trump years, and it was it was revived. Uh, and then we, you know, started raising climate bilaterally in all kinds of settings, um, and obviously multilaterally. You know. During the Trump years, it had uh, the administration had been against climate in the G7 and the G20, uh, various fora, and that was all you know kind of reversed. Um, we also went around, particularly to the major economies, um, bilaterally to try to get them to um, raise their ambition. So that was sort of the third goal: is to focus specifically on the countries that are 
I guess, most relevant in terms of emission reductions. Uh, we re-engaged with China very early on, went over there during COVID, which was pretty unusual. You know, we even went to Russia, which now is obviously not, <laughs> we do not have cooperation with Russia now, but two, two years ago, kind of did a joint statement with them. Uh, Saudi Arabia, obviously Europe and other countries that were um, already, you know, well, well engaged. Um, lots of joint statements, uh, lots of cooperation with the UK because they were about to host the Glasgow COP in 2021. So that was sort of bucket three. Um, and as you say, the US is only 10% at this point, pretty much yeah. of, of greenhouse gases. So, you know, critically important to to engage those other, you know, the the other whatever, 80, 90% of, um, of global emissions, you know, and since then, I, I would say we're doing well. Um, since that time, uh, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot more climate diplomacy going on. We've launched all kinds of initiatives that, um, that address either a particular pollutant like methane. We've got this global methane pledge cooking along. Uh, it's got, you know, well over a hundred countries signed up. We have a green shipping challenge that we launched with Norway. So there we're dealing with a particular sector as opposed to a particular pollutant. Um, we've been very active in kind of helping to, to broker outcomes at the International Civil Aviation Organization last year. We, you know, helped work out a deal to reduce emissions from the aviation sector this year, the maritime sector is uh, taking up reducing CO2 uh, emissions from, from international shipping. You know, and uh, as I said, it's not just about mitigation and emission reductions. There's also a lot going on in terms of adaptation. Uh, President has an initiative called Prepare, which is a, a about $3 billion initiative aimed at helping the most vulnerable countries um, in the world, you know, and I guess on and on. Could give you a lot more examples, but yeah, it's very, very, very busy. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. John Kerry's appointment also reflects uh, the fact that um, there's a obvious relationship, we're going to talk about this in a minute, domestic politics and climate. Right. For me, it was secular. I mean, foreign policy begins at home these days. There's no question about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that was uh, that that made an enormous amount of sense. Um, let's turn now to the COP process, the conference of the parties. The New York Times in the piece they did about you said that you only missed two. Uh, and I think the Times quotes you were saying that they're, quote, they're addictive, unquote. Um, so take us briefly inside a conference of the parties. How do you organize a deal as a negotiator with as many as 200 countries where anyone can say no or no thank you uh, at any time? And I want to also ask you about the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions. But um, the COP process that's what I call the inside process. There's an outside process, too, which I want to ask you about. But what about the inside process, the formal process? Right. Well, I'm glad you made that distinction because it's important to separate out the the what I call the COP and the greater metropolitan COP, you know, which is the outside process. So the inside process is really uh, it's the literally the parties to the agreement. Um, that and that legal entity is called the conference of the parties, and they have an annual um, an annual meeting. And they're the it's the decision making body, which is as you say, almost two hundred countries. And they the decision making rule is essentially consensus. So you're right. That means the absence of a stated objection in in uh, to to be specific about it. 
And so you do have to come up with some kind of outcome that satisfies countries enough so that nobody gets up and says, you know, no or no, thank you. Um, so it's obviously very challenging. Uh, and as, as I said, I guess it's a, you know, you, every year I ask myself, like, why am I doing this? Um, and what was I thinking? And please shoot me if you see me here next year. But then when it's all over, you do get some kind of sense of satisfaction and end up returning. Um, anyway, you know, the the COP decisions, some, let me just uh, make some distinctions. So um, to make it easier to understand, sometimes a decision at a particular COP is is mandated either by the Paris Agreement or you know, by a previous year's COP. So for example, this global stock take outcome is mandated by the, the Paris Agreement to take place this year. Some other things that may happen at a, at a particular COP may have been decided, let's say, by the Glasgow uh, COP, you know, like two years from now, we will do blah, blah, blah. This year, you know, we're supposed to take a decision on loss and damage funding arrangements. That was mandated at last year's COP in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. So, um, so you might be facing a COP uh, that has kind of not much on the agenda, or you might be facing a cop that has, you know, a lot on the agenda. And that obviously kind of dictates what's going on at the, at the, at the cop. Now it, the cops are not, um, the only thing that happens during a year. There's an entire preparatory process during the year before you get to the cop. So you never just get to the cop and say like, Oh, what are the issues? <laughs> Let's start talking about them. No, uh, the issues that are on the, uh, agenda for this year, for example, there have already been a zillion uh, meetings. Some of them are, you know, they take place at different levels. They take place in different formats. So sometimes they are, you know, heads of delegation, meaning not at the ministerial level, but at the negotiator level. Um, there's a huge kind of intersessional gathering every year in June, uh, which is the most, I guess, formal um, kind of precursor to the to the COP. But then there are all kinds of, uh, you know, virtual meetings that are also formal. And then there are informal meetings where you have either countries or think tanks pulling negotiators together to try to, you know, come up with what we call uh, potential landing zones. Right. And then um, the issues are also uh, distinguishable in terms of whether everybody pretty much knows before the cop where this thing's going to land. And it's just a matter of, you know fine-tuning um, and getting the whole thing down on paper and sometimes not at all. And it's a complete nail biter down to the, uh, to the last evening. There's also like a rhythm to each cop. I would say this is not always followed. In fact, it was not really the case in Sharm el-Sheikh where we had an all-nighter on day one. <laughs> That's pretty unusual. Generally the pace of a cop is that you start, you know, it's never, I would never call it slow because it's pretty much meetings all all day and night, um, even from the beginning, but not, I would say not all nighters, but then it kind of picks up and, you know, the rhythm of the cop is, you know, towards the second week and end of the second week, uh, it gets truly, um, insane and crazy in terms of the, the pace, the pressure, the hours and all of that. So that's, so I would say a kind of a cop, cop in a nutshell. Right. Okay. So the, <clears throat> the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, this isn't like arms control, where you can have on-site inspections and verification as to whether country X is being true to its or making progress, monitoring. I, I mean, I suppose there's satellite monitoring, but how do how would you monitor a country's global emissions? How would you know, in fact, that they're meeting and or making progress toward their objectives? Yeah, that question comes up a lot. Um, the There is a very strong, and particularly under the Paris Agreement, strong what we call transparency system. It's not a transparency system in the sense that you mentioned of like having an inspector come in and check on your CO2 emissions, but uh, there's a strong reporting and review mechanism. So you do have to account for yourself in kind of two ways. You have to report regularly on your emissions of the key greenhouse gases. And you also have to report on how are you doing towards implementing and achieving your NDC. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that all gets reviewed. Now, could there be a discrepancy between what you say and what is true? 
yes, but uh, in general, I think that you know, there. Uh, I think countries, you you would be taking a chance to put out information that was not true because there are enough, uh, you know, sort of organizations in the world and probably eventually satellites monitoring these kinds of things that you know, uh, it's not likely. Uh, to happen. So anyway, so that so that's a big part of the Paris Agreement is this transparency system, which basically, you know, it hel- it's what helps you figure out are you on on track or not collectively. Okay, so that's the formal process. Uh, the, well, the Cliff's Notes version, although I'm dating myself again. Uh, the Cliff Notes version. Um, the outside process, uh, the subnationals, corporations, think tanks universities, uh, other organizations, um, cities. A, how active is the outside? And does the inside actually listen? And is it influenced by the outsiders? Uh, Okay, good questions. So the second meaning of COP is COP as event, as opposed to COP as formal, you know, decision-making of, of governments. And so that's the one that you, where, you know, when you hear about like 40,000 people descended upon City X, that's the, 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 the greater metropolitan COP. And that is composed of all the kinds of actors that you've just mentioned. Um, under our process, they they go all go under the umbrella of non-party stakeholders, right? So uh, that's a way of describing, you know, subnationals, uh, companies, NGOs, et cetera. Um, so, and they play many roles. I would say one is influence for sure. That influence can take place at the national level. So for example, we will, you know, brief our non-party stakeholders um, several times during the COP and get feedback and, you know, be influenced them either before the COP, during the COP, et cetera. Um, but they also have an influence, you know, as a, on mass. you know, there will be sometimes be protests, the NGOs produce a newsletter that's handed out in the morning. They can kind of shape uh, reactions during the day by, you know, condemning something that was said the day, day before. Um, they have an they have influence on commentators and on journalists, right? So at the end, when you read the headline about whether a particular cop was a success, sometimes those, you know, the uh, journalists will go to key members of civil society or these non-party stakeholders to get their read on. You know, was this thing uh, was this thing a a success or not? So yeah, they have a lot of influence. But the other thing that they do, um, and this has become you know more and more prevalent, is they take on commitments at these uh, cops or and show you know what they're doing. So it's not just a matter of influencing; they're also you know actors in terms of uh, emission reductions. So, uh, and that became even stronger, at least from a U.S. point of view, when Trump announced in 2017, June 1st, to be exact, that the U.S. was pulling out of the Paris Agreement. I think within maybe 24 hours, you had the um, uh, We Are Still In coalition, you had the U.S. Climate Alliance, which was U.S. states. Uh, we Are Still In was a group, you know, broader than than subnationals, but included all kinds of other actors and you know they start taking on their own commitments to show that you know it's that us is not monolithic they had a big pavilion at the cop that year that was probably larger than any country's pavilion with all kinds of speakers and um you know commitments to to emission reductions so um yeah so i think when you look at that side of the house you got to look at it in, in kind of a couple different ways and you know it makes a huge contribution to the to the outcome of of a cop the on the issue of companies and corporations um and their commitments um it how much of uh, how to generalize but is there green so-called greenwashing going on here well you know that issue comes up quite a bit of course and i guess it depends on uh, your point of view exactly what uh, what constitutes Greenwashing, you know, that's kind of an umbrella term for, let's say, companies taking on some kind of commitment, but it's not, it's not, either it's not real or it's, you know, good intention, but not necessarily uh, implemented or, you know, enforced. 
Um, I think things have tightened up over the last several years in terms of, you know, a lot of the uh, kind of umbrella organizations that companies can belong to in terms of these commitments have tightened up the requirements for uh, reporting and and reviews so that you can't just get away with um, a commitment that, you know, and then you get the political benefit and then you don't do anything. Uh, it actually came up at the COP in, in Glasgow where, you know, financial institutions were taking on this uh, so-called net net zero commitments. And, you know, the UN Secretary General got into the act and basically announced kind of, you know, impromptu at that COP, like I'm setting up a high level group to make sure that these uh, commitments of financial institutions and corporate commitments, you know, meet certain standards of, uh, you know, rigorous standards. And uh, that, you know, that that group produced a report um, last year. So, you know, there are all kinds of exercises going on to try to make sure that the, you know, the outside world is is kind of in a way subject to the same kind of reporting and review that the that the inside world is. Okay, so um, November this year, uh, you'll be gathered, gathering in um, Abu Dhabi, in the, in the Emirates, for COP28. <clears throat> um, a lot of climate activists, understandably, have raised eyebrows and more than that about why COP28 is being held in the UAE, um, a country that's got 100, roughly 111 billion, that's billion, uh, crude, in crude reserves, a country that plans apparently to double their output um, to 5 million barrels a day, and they brought that goal forward, uh, hydrocarbons. The the notion that uh, the Emirates, even though they've been active, very active on climate, um, Sultan al-Jabbar uh, al is the going to be the president of COP28. Is this a, tell me why, Sue, this is not a uh, an example of the Fox guarding the henhouse on this? Well, first of all, so the way the COP presidencies work is that each region picks the, you know, there's a rotating system, um, five different regions. Uh, each region picks the COP president for its turn. You know, as I mentioned before, this is Asia's turn, which is a very broad group of, of countries extending from the Middle East to, you know, the Pacific Islands. So very diverse group. Last time it was Asia, it was, you know, Fiji was the was the host of Small Island. Uh, now you have, um, so they picked the UAE. So it's not actually, you know, some people were asking, how could you have picked the UAE? The United States didn't pick the, the UAE, that region picked the UAE. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it has been controversial, right? You've probably read about, um, you know, groups being quite alarmed, uh, including groups in the United States. And even in, uh, even in the U.S. Senate, there was, I think, a letter saying, hey, this, you know, like, how could the United States uh, support this? The United States needs to, you know, complain about it. Um, I think what John Kerry's reaction has been, you know, that the UAE may be unique, you know, unlike a small island, for example, the UAE may be uniquely able to bring either its region um, to to the table, you know, and or hopefully and oil and gas companies to take on um, new commitments with respect to emissions. Uh, they've already put out some. Uh, Dr. Sultan uh, Al Jabber did appear at, at Sarah Week in Houston and laid out some objectives with respect to the oil and gas industry. Um, Secretary Kerry adds. However, that the proof will be in the pudding, so it's uh, it's kind of like a watch a watch and see situation. Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's a question mark. I think he feels reasonably confident that they will be able to deliver. They, in part, because of the criticism, they have a lot to prove. Right, that this cop was not a mistake, um, and they're working very hard. They have a huge team putting a lot of effort into it. So I guess all I can say is, you know, we shall see. And Right. Al said some pretty interesting things. I mean, I think he called actually, he described the need for, quote, transformational action, unquote. 
He said we need to be laser-like in phasing out fossil fuel emissions and conceded way off track introducing emissions. All that's fine. The broader issue, though, is whether or how do you even begin to make this transition, right, to renewables and to clean energy when, in fact, dependence on hydrocarbons and specifically Arab hydrocarbons, because the Gulf is going to emerge as a key oil producer for for years to come. How do you, uh, I mean, I guess you have two choices. You can phase out emissions by burning less carbon or using technology to capture the remaining carbons that's being burned. But in the case of the Emirates, we may find in the end of 2023 that, you know, they're ramping up oil production as well as trying to lead the way in climate. So I just forget uh, identifying or isolating the UAE as, as as an issue. It's the broader issue, isn't it, of how you make this transition? Absolutely. And, you know, if uh, I mean, that's the $64,000 question is how do you do all of this, I think. Um, and how do you get the political will to do it apart from the, you know, Indeed. how do you technically do it? Right. So um, it's going to be a combination of moving towards renewables and carb. You know, we support the idea of carbon capture and doing more research on that. We've sort of laid that out as or actually, I mean, we have followed the international energy agencies, what, what I call the four part harmony, where they've said, you know, in order to keep 1.5 alive, you need to do four things. You need to decarbonize um, the energy sector. You need to stop deforestation. Uh, You need to focus on these gases like under the Kigali Amendment, you know, HFCs and also methane. They're non-CO2 gases that are also very potent in terms of of warming. And then fourth is you need to do more research on carbon capture technologies to, uh, you know, to scale those those there is a debate going on uh, in fact i was just at one of these ministerial meetings in in berlin called the petersburg dialogue and you know this this exact debate kind of um emerged over are we talking about reducing uh emissions from oil and gas or are we trying are we actually trying to phase out oil and gas per se and that's where you get into a little bit of a uh debate between countries that say like you know we really need to move away from oil and gas as fuels um, and others that say, hey, it's all about the, you'll hear Saudi Arabia, for example, say, hey, the Paris Agreement is actually not, it's it's fuel agnostic is what they say. It does not say, you know, any particular fuel is is the villain. It's the emissions that are the villains so that if you can find a way to keep using oil and gas in a way where, you know, the CO2 emissions are captured, you know, fine. So I think that's one of the issues that people should pay attention to this year because I think the phrasing of, you know, what we call for in this um, in the Dubai outcome at the end of the year will reveal, you know, where did that debate land? Right. Well, yeah, I know. And, you know, you obviously you were charmed. You couldn't get language in the final communique on, quote unquote, phasing out uh, fossil fuels. I have two more questions to ask you, which I'm determined to ask um, and very little time to do it. One is the obvious issue of domestic politics. We don't have to have an in-depth discussion. We don't have time. But it's absolutely elemental that without the political will and a consensus and an administration that supports climate goals, we've seen, you've seen the other side of this. We could find ourselves in 2024 in the same position that we found ourselves in 2016. Um, just a comment or two from you on how you you have to deal with domestic politics as a reality. Um, as a practical matter, how does it affect your work? Yeah, um, great question. It's been an issue since I started working on this way back when. Uh, it's actually, you know, as a lawyer, it acts actually, I hate to say this, but it's one of the reasons why the topic was so interesting to work on, um, even though, of course, fraught, you know, because as a lawyer, you had to come up with ways in, you know, you mentioned Sisyphus before. I always think of Scylla and Charybda, right, having to navigate between the the shores of the international expectations and, you know, the domestic politics. And we kept having to think of ways in, in 
like in which we could participate in an international agreement and and you know also sort of deliver on what we were committing and that required us to do go through all kinds of gyrations whether it's you know non-binding approaches or uh, characterizing our commitment um, in a way that we thought we could you know we could land de facto even if we couldn't sort of get there you know through, through a particular climate law so that's been going on forever um i think you know paris was i i had thought the paris agreement was kind of the sweet spot and that any future republican administration would stick with it you know it's a non-binding ndc approach also you're nationally determining your commitment you you know no one's pushing you around in terms of what you uh you commit to it actually you know i've sort of written about how um you know, it absolutely met all of the uh, sort of infirmities that the United States had uh, identified with respect to the Kyoto Protocol, which we didn't join. Um, so I was actually pretty surprised that we pulled out of uh, out of the, the Paris Agreement because I thought that that was like the the Goldilocks of <laughs> of um, climate um, climate agreements. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, it 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 affects our participation. It's frustrating. It's hard. Other countries get irritated, of course, because, you know, you're asking them to make concessions for the, you know, for the United States. But then they they worry like, well, wait a minute, if I make those concessions, how do I know you'll actually, you know, join that agreement or even if you join it, that you'll stick to that agreement? Um, I would say that there was a lot I worried about that coming back in with the Biden administration, that the international reaction would be sort of like, well, why, why do we listen to anything that you say you have no credibility, but it, the, I think countries were pretty glad to have the, <laughs> a pro climate administration back. And we didn't hear a lot about that. You know, having worked and voted for Republicans and Democrats, I once believed firmly in something called the national interest. I, I don't take it for granted anymore. You, you've seen in the debt negotiation, well, the soon to be maybe negotiations over the debt ceiling what's on the chopping block it's the 360 billion dollars or whatever funding uh that this administration wants to commit to, to deal with climate issues one last question and i promise i will let you and viewers go and that is china um can you just give us an update on whether or not what had been a pretty uh, productive relationship at cop 26 in glasgow methane reduction, deforestation, even something on coal, if I'm not mistaken. How uh, Secretary Kerry and his, uh, I know they've talked virtually, I, I heard, earlier this year. How are things going with China, or is the geopolitics simply making effective cooperation impossible? Yeah. Um, well, as you probably know, there's a, a long history of U.S. China engagement on climate. The um, a leader level statement in 2014, a year before Paris, was pretty critical in, you know, catalyzing, um, you know, NDCs from 185 countries, something like that, and and coming up with a lot of the the solutions for the Paris Agreement. Um, obviously, not much during the Trump years. So you're right, there was reengagement, heavy duty in 2021. Um, Secretary Kerry is very interested in, um, you know, reengaging. And as I said, China kind of re reappointed its special envoy um, from the past. And we got off to a promising start. Both countries had agreed that climate would sort of be on its own track, unaffected by other bilateral issues. I'd say, you're, you know, you're you're also right that we got bogged down in 2022, not from the U.S. side. I think we were still prepared to treat climate as a separate issue. You know, Secretary Blinken has called it a, uh, he said we need to treat it separately because it's a global issue and it's an existential issue. And for both of those reasons, you can't, we can't afford as a, as a world to allow bilateral issues to, to kind of get in the way. But from a China point of view, um, they did let the bilateral issues, whether it was the Olympics uh, boycott or, you know, other uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to to Taiwan. You know, there was sort of one thing after another that um, uh, got in the way of talking. We, we did start talking again at this last COP in Egypt and have been sort of 
you know, virtually talking and at a lower level, more like my level, uh, you know, engaging uh, at various meetings on on the COP issues. Um, you know, we there have been virtual meetings at the at the Kerry Chia Jinhua uh, level. And, you know, there may be some kind of um, in-person meeting in the offing that hasn't been scheduled yet. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I mean, you don't get to 1.5 without more reductions from China. That's just the bottom line. I mean, they're the almost 30 percent emitter of greenhouse gases. And unless they do more to accelerate um, emission reductions in this decade, it's very hard to say that uh, you're keeping 1.5 alive or that you're going to have a successful cop um, later this year in, in Dubai. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very important priority, not just for us, but for like the rest of the world to get them to do, to do more. Uh, so Sue, I want to thank you. Sue Binius. I mean, you truly are a national resource. Uh, it, it's absolutely the case. Your authority, your expertise, and I might add your ability to um, articulate in ways that are comprehensible and accessible to normal humans, I think it's phenomenal. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your wisdom, Carnegie Connects. To all you Carnegie Connects viewers, next Wednesday, May 17, we'll be interviewing former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, uh, May 17 at 2.30, on Israel at 75. It ought to be a fascinating, fascinating interview. But uh, Sue, uh, thanks again. Good luck. I'm glad. I'm so happy you are where you are. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Take care. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.